Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast, recording from the Cleveland Public Library. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Andrew Tobias. I'm Mary Kilpatrick. And thanks for tuning in. Ohio is an important state. It's important geographically, economically, and socially. Most prominently, it's important politically. This podcast will dive into some of that importance, talking with political figures from the state about their history and the significance Ohio plays in the political realm. We'll bring you weekly in-depth chats with guests from all walks of political life. Be sure to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast service. Special thanks to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us make this podcast possible. This week we sat down with former Ohio Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges, uh, Andrew and Mary initially interviewed him. I joined in later, and you know, Borges—he's a really interesting guy, uh, don't you guys think? I thought the best part of our initial interview was when—and I don't want to spoil it—but it involves Sean Spicer and Matt Borges on an altar together. He's had such a story though throughout the entire time. Yeah, though, I we, think we talked to Matt about uh, his kind of rise and fall when he was a young political operative. He eventually got caught up in a—I guess you call it like a corruption probe. It, you know, people disagree about kind of what the ultimate, what, what the there there was. But so he, he was down and out after that. Um, but he caught back on with Kasich. He did a presidential campaign. He helped organize the first debate in a Republican presidential primary. I think people are going to remember for a long time. And then he uh, got uh, at one point he's elected state chairman. He's voted out. Uh, so he's kind of like seen it all and he's in his 40s but he's kind of like I, I don't think that you could have a more eventful political career as an operative than if you're Matt I think what we learned about Matt Borges today is never count him down and out I mean he he keeps coming punching back um, I don't think his uh, political career is over to say the least yeah I think when you uh, are in politics you your sort of power is based on your influence and then when people perceive your influence to have waned they kind of stop calling I think Matt's experienced that once. I get the sense this last time uh, when he was voted out as party chair in January 2017, that I think he took a little bit of time off, but he was back in the state issue campaign that we didn't really talk about today. Um, but now he's working with some candidates again. So I, people are still calling with him, and I, I think he's just kind of rolling with the punches. And with that, let's get to the interview with Matt Borges, the former Ohio Republican Party chairman. Hey, this is Andrew Tobias, and you're listening to Ohio Matters, a Cleveland.com politics podcast. We're joined here today at the Cleveland Public Library by Matt Borges, former Ohio Republican Party chairman and current Ohio Republican operative. Does that sound right, Matt? I think that is right. All right. So how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So how are you staying busy these days? What are you up to? Uh, busy isn't the problem. We have, a, we have an awful lot going on. Um, I think, as you know, uh, after uh, I left the party chairmanship, uh, I went back full-time to the firm I've been with uh, since 2010, Retzel & Andrus. Uh, we have an office here in Cleveland, and uh, where I just was earlier this morning. And um, and so I've been doing the government relations and, and political consulting thing. Uh, uh, had an issue campaign I worked on last year, and um, just been building our practice. Uh, we just hired a young man from the governor's office uh, to come over. Uh, who actually had worked as uh, Governor Kasich's personal aide for a while, and in his um, in in his legislative shop, uh, named Alex Thomas, and um, and of course gearing up for what's coming this year. Uh, we have our statewide elections and legislative elections, congressional elections, et cetera, a U.S. Senate race, and so um, a lot of these people that are running are 
people that have become friends of mine over the years. Uh, I ran Dave Yost's campaign for state auditor in 2010, and he's running for attorney general this year. Um, I'll be helping him and, uh, of course, helping Mike DeWine and John Husted get elected governor and lieutenant governor. And, uh, and other folks, Frank LaRose, who's a Northeast Ohio Republican and, and great friend who's running for Secretary of State and, and so many others. So our, um, uh, we're elbow deep in, uh, in political campaigns and, and other things going on around the state house uh, and through the you know, kind of Capitol Square area uh, and around the state. So um, things are busy and, and busy on the home front too. So uh, yeah, things are good. So the, the phrase permanent campaign, like you're, you're experiencing that. Right? My wife doesn't believe me anymore. And I, so I don't even try it anymore. I used to say to her, oh, honey, things will slow down after Election Day. And she now she knows that that's just a throwaway line um, that I'm using to get out of whatever hot water I'm in at that time because <laughs> uh, things never slow down after Election Day. It, uh, it, it, it just starts another cycle. And uh, you go through a round of endorsements and filings and, and fundraising and posturing to get into the cycle that we're in now um, where we'll actually have some campaigns and some races this year and see what we can do. We've had an incredible run of electing Republicans at the state level and the local level uh, over the last couple of decades, and we need to try to keep it going. So we want to talk about 2018, but we're going to go way back first where it all began. So, you know, get ready. (laughs) Um, So you grew up in Rhode Island, right? I did. So uh, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, your upbringing, what your parents did, that kind of stuff? Yeah, I had uh, a a, a lovely childhood, sort of idyllic uh, uh, upbringing, uh, Great parents. Uh, my mom and dad. Well, my dad's a was a lifelong school teacher and an administrator in the Providence school systems. Um, my mother had started her career as a school teacher and a librarian, and then worked in um, communications position um, for the state of Rhode Island for the mental hospitals in Rhode Island, and um, and you know very happy uh, existence there. Uh, my father was also a local elected official. And so I got a taste at an early age of what it's like to run, what it's like to be a candidate, what it's like to win, what it's like to lose. And, um, and just out of happenstance, when my dad was elected to the Barrington Town Council many years ago in 1984, shortly thereafter, there was a, uh, a, an issue that became a national issue, the epicenter of which was in Barrington, Rhode Island, and that was the um, the dispute that made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court about whether or not public properties could display nativity scenes. And um, ours was a town that opted to remove the nativity scene from, uh, from the town hall, a uh, very Catholic uh, community, and um, that caused a lot of consternation at the local and eventually national level. Um, I remember the morning we got the call from my dad to gum, come down to New York and be on the Today Show. And so very suddenly we found ourselves in the middle of really what became a, 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 a real hot-button national issue at that time. And was this a kind of town council like New England where it's 500 people who live there and they all show up? Or, I mean, maybe I'm... It's, it, yes, it's, it's different than that. Uh, that is, uh, and, and that's the experience that a lot of us had when we, like, when we saw what was going on in New Hampshire when we yeah. got to spend time there. Now, this, this, was, um, this was a body of five elected um, Republicans and Democrats in town, um, and and my dad finished fifth in '84. He won, and uh, and was able to serve a couple terms on on the town council, and just happened to be there when the wheel came round. It just was one of those eye-opening experiences you never know. 
um, uh, how that's going to go. Uh, he, he ran as a Republican uh, and um, in, in, a, in a town that I like to remind uh, my friends uh, in Kasich world that Kasich carried Barrington in, um, in the primary in, uh, in, in 2016. So I delivered both my home communities. I d- we delivered Ohio and we delivered Barrington for him. Um, but uh, uh, he also lost uh, a couple years later. And so um, I got to experience that with him too. And that was a very eye-opening experience for me. I got to sit with him at the kitchen table the night that we came from where we were tallying the, the votes. And he, only, he, he lost by a handful of votes that year. Um, and I got to see how personal it was. And sometimes in politics we get to the place where you sort of um, you set that stuff aside. And no matter how you rationalize it or what have you, I know what I experienced uh, with watching him go through that, um, was he still felt like he was rejected by his community in some way at some level. And, uh, and it was an interesting lesson for me to learn early on that these are still personal experiences for the candidates that are running, and it matters to them how you conduct yourself and uh, how you emerge from those races. So what drew you to the Republican Party? Being, being you know, the, the son of school teachers in Rhode Island, it's not necessarily what you'd expect. It isn't. Um, we're... We're, again, we're, we're you know Catholic community, Catholic family, Catholic upbringing. Uh, so I think that bred a little bit of the conservatism uh, in us uh, early on, and um, and really, I, I had the I was a fan of I, I was a child of the Reagan years, um, so I was a fan of uh, Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush from a from a young age. Um, there weren't a lot of Republicans, but we did have Republican governors in in Rhode Island at the time. And um, I came to Ohio to go to the Ohio State University in 1990. And when I came here, I met uh, a group of people that were working for the then Republican mayor of Cleveland, which are words we may never say in the same sentence again. Yes, an anachronism. Uh, Right. Um, George Voinovich. And uh, he was running for governor that year. I got a chance to get involved in the very, very tail end of that campaign at a microscopic level. I was barely even on the radar. I came and volunteered for a couple things and then was hired as an intern in the governor's office uh, shortly after he won and took office. And, um, you know, he was was a terrific person and mentor who I stayed in touch with until, uh, you know, a a couple of days before he passed away, unfortunately, in 2016. So, um, you know, the the kind of person that uh, could could uh, make you believe in in conservative principles and, and Republican politics and and do it in a way that uh, sometimes I think we get cast as the people who don't care or don't care about our communities and whatnot. And there's no question that uh, George Voinovich very much did, and he instilled that in a lot of people like me um, to want to follow his lead and, and, and lead and govern that way. Before you came to Ohio, I understand you, you knew Sean Spicer or grew up with Sean Spicer? Sean Spicer and I grew up in the same town. Our moms graduated high school together. I've known Sean ever since I was, well, ever since I can remember. Um, and uh, although he didn't go, he didn't, he didn't, uh, he couldn't hack it on the mean streets of Barrington. He, uh, not he, everyone can. I know it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. So no, he was, uh, he was bright enough to go to uh, a, um, a prep school a couple towns over. And um, so we, we haven't been close through the years, but yeah, I've, I've known Sean and his sister Shannon um, really kind of my whole life. 
what was he like in school? Well, we didn't. Again, we didn't go to school together. Uh, we we maybe in our first couple of years of grade school, and he was he was a little older than I am. I think he's he's my brother's two years older than I am. I think he's the year between us, and I believe Shannon is a year younger. Um, but we certainly knew each other, growing up, you know, growing up, and um, served uh, mass together at St. Luke's Church in Barrington. We were we were altar servers together, and um, I, you know, always a a, a good. Uh, hearted person and um, passionate about what he did and we reconnected years later when he was working in Washington and I got involved in Republican politics and um, you know we had a good experience together putting the first debate on here in Cleveland um, way back when it seems like forever ago in, in, in <laughs> the summer of 2015. I, I have to ask uh, do you have any thoughts on Melissa McCarthy's uh, impersonation of him on Saturday Night Live? Um, you know, so a, a couple things. First, I, I, it was hilarious. Uh, she was so good. And I, Saturday Night Live just isn't really that funny anymore. I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm not in their um, target demographic because I'm older now. But I just don't find it that funny. That was one of the best things they've done in a long time, um, one of their marquee kind of performances. Uh, but I, I know I, I noticed, and I, Sean and I don't communicate very much at all, uh, anymore, actually at all anymore. But I noticed in some of his public comments, he didn't really seem to like it all that much. Now, it can't be fun to be pilloried by anyone um, publicly like that, but most of the time you feel like you could just kind of laugh it off. And he didn't really seem to think it was that funny, which I which I found interesting. Uh, I don't know if privately he was fine with it, but um, it seemed to, to bother him some. So, uh, you know, that's that's unfortunate if it if it made him feel uh, disquieted at all. Uh, that's, uh, you know, that it's, it certainly isn't fun to be, to be uh, made a public figure like that. But that's how you know you've made it though, is when you're, you know, in the public consciousness enough to be on Saturday Night Live, I guess, right? So, I guess. <laughs> uh, so uh, how did you, uh, you said that you went to OSU. Uh, how is it that you decided to stick here and kind of, where did you go from there, you know, in your political career? It, candidly, once I got here, my roots kind of got set and grew pretty deep right away. By the time I was I finished school uh, in four years. I, I graduated in 1994 when Governor Voinovich was running for re-election that year. And in the, mean, in the meantime, I had um, started uh, interning in the governor's office. I ran the Students for Lashutka campaign when Greg Lashutka, our then city attorney, ran for mayor and won uh, the Republican won the race for, for mayor of Columbus in 1991. I had run myself for the local central committee, been part of a really uh, amazing experience where we endorsed uh, the replacement for uh, for our then congressman, a guy named Chalmers Wiley, who I later ended up working with um, uh, later in his life and right up until he passed away um, and, uh, and had a great relationship with. But we, we endorsed a woman named Deborah Price, who served in Congress. And um, she initially that, that vote came back tied. And then we took another vote and a couple of people changed their minds and um, and so it was really an amazing experience. That very first vote I was ever part of was a really significant, impactful one. Deborah went on to serve with distinction in Congress and chaired the conference and was a member of leadership and a friend to this day. Um, and so uh, it, there was just a lot going on, and I was very involved in the local political scene and went on to run statewide uh, local and then statewide campaigns myself, help friends get elected uh, and, and do things through the years in politics that um, – just made it so that there was really no reason to go anywhere else. So when did you know that um, 
So from when you started having like a really microscopic role in Voinovich's campaign to starting to run campaigns, when, when did you know that was something that you wanted to do? Um, I think I've always kind of known that that's a role I wanted to play. Uh, once I figured out that I was never going to you know, play center field for the Boston Red Sox, I, um, I've tried to think of something else that I might be at least passable at. And, uh, and so I, I've always enjoyed politics and, and I'm more of a, of a behind the scenes kind of guy. So, uh, I had to later in life take a role that was a little more public and in front of the scenes, that was a, that was a huge adjustment for me. Um, and so, but I really enjoyed the behind the scenes aspect of advising and helping candidates and helping people get elected. And that was a very enjoyable experience. I, I got opportunities, um, at a very young age to, uh, to, to meet the people I met when working for governor Voinovich. And then, um, a lot of those folks, you know, gave me opportunities later and I, I ran a local race in uh, Franklin County for a woman who is still on the Franklin County domestic bench, uh, Dana Price, and uh, and and we won unexpectedly. We beat a seated judge, which no one thought we were going to do that year. Uh, so I sort of made a little bit of a name for myself in local political circles, I guess. And then uh, later that next year, uh, a friend of ours from the Voinovich days, a guy named Joe Dieters, called and said, "Hey, I'm thinking about running for state treasurer. Would you help me?" Uh, little did I know about three or four months later, I'd be managing that campaign. So I was managing my first campaign, statewide campaign, when I was 25 years old. He won and hired me as his chief of staff. I was 26. And um, and there just was a, it, it was a real great time to take advantage of uh, opportunities. I was the child of prosperity. The Republican Party was just turning the ship around in Ohio. And I happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I felt like it was something I wanted to be part of and something I thought I could give back to. get Capital Letter, it's the must-have daily read for Statehouse happenings. Five mornings a week, Cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct, timely information. It's perfect for people, businesses, and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers, the governor, and all of state government. From breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda, if you're not getting Capital Letter, you're missing out. For more information, visit Cleveland.com slash Capital Letter. Again, that's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. So Borges kind of climbed the ladder, and before he became state party chairman, though, he first caught on with a Cincinnati area politician named Joe Dieters. Uh, Joe uh, eventually was elected state treasurer, and Matt Borges became his chief of staff, but it also kind of set in motion a series of events that put Matt in some legal trouble. Now more from our interview with former Ohio Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges. So obviously um, that your career with with Joe Dieters had like uh, an an inauspicious end, I guess. I don't know. But uh, so how did that all come to pass? Um, Obviously, I I guess for people who are listening, I'm going to read what I wrote down just so I don't get the the verbiage wrong. Sure. In uh, 2004, you pleaded guilty to one count of improper use of a public office. What what happened there? There was a... um... There was a broker who uh, worked with the state state treasurer's office 
who became kind of a notorious figure in Cleveland, uh, a guy named Frank Rudadaria, who served uh, many years, several years in federal prison. Uh, he was stealing from his clients. He um, defrauded a number of wealthy Cleveland uh, families and, and business owners and whatnot. Um, and he was someone who had been introduced to uh, our campaign, who I met one time, and um, and had contributed to uh, to to the party. There was a feeding frenzy around his story when um, he was exposed for the things that he was doing and 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 um, and making up phony investments and things of that nature, which was just uh, deplorable. But when we had a connection to uh, him through the fact that he did some brokerage work for the state treasurer. Um, a local prosecutor here uh, took it on himself to try to tie that to my boss. Uh, he dragged me up to Cuyahoga County and threatened, his name is Bill Mason, and um, he threatened to uh, have me prosecuted if I wouldn't flip on Joe and, t- and tell him the things that he wanted to hear, whether they were true or not. I refused to do that. And, um, and ultimately, uh, it, they asked me to, I told them I wasn't going to plead to anything that I didn't do. Uh, I didn't do anything wrong. Uh, they asked me to plead to a charge of, uh, what's called a revolving door violation. Um, and, um, and I did that uh, under the advice of counsel and others at the time. And was vindicated years later when Bill Mason left in disgrace and when uh, a local judge up here took up our case and um, dismissed the, that those charges and dismissed that case and then sealed the record forever. Um, it was uh, it was a but it was a difficult experience. I'm not going to lie. That was a um, that was one of those times where I was splashed across the front page of the papers. And was that when you became the your first experience being in front of the, the scenes, you know? Yeah, uh, and, and not really. I don't know how in front of the scenes I really was at that point in time, but, you know, my name was being used in a context that, you know, it's not, it's not, how, you, not how you dream it to, uh, up to be. And um, it, one thing that it did is it, it taught me to take the word fair out of my vocabulary. I never talk about things in terms of whether they're fair or not fair. Um, that was something that was in, inherently, I guess, unfair. Uh, when somebody can use the power of government to bully, a, you know, I was 31, 32 years old at the time, 31 years old, and um, didn't have the financial wherewithal to take something to trial, whether I did it or not, and I watched how they manipulated the system. This was somebody who, Bill Mason, who was part of the whole Jimmy DeMora scandal here in Cuyahoga County, um, seemed to apparently never notice that anything was going on at the county level because they didn't prosecute anyone, they didn't charge anyone, they didn't, you know, even though Jimmy and other and a number of other people ended up going to federal prison. Um, and my understanding is that Mr. Mason barely avoided that fate himself. In some ways, you have to, uh, when you go through those experiences, uh, they make you stronger, they make you uh, look at things a different way, um, you hope someday you have the kind of vindication that I was ultimately able to get. And, um, and then uh, it, it taught me a lot about letting go, uh, letting go of, uh, of, of, of bad feelings of anger, of frustration, um, you know, feelings of revenge, all these things that it just they're, they're not worth having because ultimately they don't hurt the people that uh, are hurting you. They only hurt yourself. And um, 
I also had to take responsibility for the things that I did do during that period of time. I didn't deserve any of the things that, uh, that, that happened to me up here in those years, but um, it was quite an experience and uh, a, a difficult one to be sure. But I feel like I came out on, you know, the way I always say it is uh, I ended up where I ended up and Bill Mason ended up where he ended up. And that's kind of the end of the story. So at some point, I guess you were probably wondering, like, what am I going to do now that this whole scandal has happened? How did you decide to kind of get back into the game or what was that like? Look, I'll tell you, and I, I have had the opportunity to counsel some people who go through difficult times because it's something that, unfortunately, I can speak uh, with experience uh, about. Um, and I'm very fortunate in my life. Uh, people always say to you when you're going through something, well, it helps teach you who your friends are. I, I know who my friends are. I always knew who they were. I had, uh, but, you know, who are your really, really good friends? Um, most of us are fortunate to be able to count really good friends on one hand, if we have any at all. And uh, candidly, my mom, um, a, uh, and, and there, was, there was one gentleman uh, who I will always care very much, very, very deeply for. Uh, his name is Doug Price. Uh, he's a local county chairman in Franklin County who just said he was, you know, he's going to keep me alive politically. Uh, another friend of mine uh, who kept me alive professionally. And uh, you, you, you're, you're fortunate in life if, you're, if you have one or two of those kinds of friends. And um, they just made sure that that was the kind of thing that wasn't going to allow other folks who wanted to take advantage of that to, uh, you know, to, to um, kind of force me out of the business or anything. And, and uh, it wasn't too long before I was back up on my feet. And I think there was a good lesson there in that um, moving forward from that. You wanted to make sure you took responsibility for the things that you did. You never admitted to things that you didn't do. Uh, allowed that process to play out to where it ultimately exonerated me and exposed the people who were kind of behind all that. But um, you also realize moving forward that uh, your friends are your friends no matter what happens to you. Your enemies are your enemies no matter what happens to you. And that's a very small percentage of people out there. The rest of the world doesn't know, doesn't care. And um, you just kind of have to... Uh, you have to put your head down and move forward, and, and that's what I did. And, you know, I, th I think um, in the long run, ultimately, for where I've ended up here now, I guess 14 years later, uh, I'm proud of the way I conducted myself and, and proud of the way that I emerged from that process and just pleased with the things that I've been fortunate and blessed to be able to do since then. So how did you end up uh, becoming the state party chairman? Um. I ran for that position in 2013. Our, um, our state party chair in 2010, a guy named Kevin DeWine, uh, who helped engineer the sweep of the ticket that year, um, kind of had a, I guess for lack of a better way to put it, a falling out with our governor um, and uh, ultimately stepped down from that position. Um, a great uh, leader for the Republican Party who I had known since I initially got involved in politics, Bob Bennett, came back as chairman. Chairman, I, I, I agreed uh, to go over to the state party as Chairman Bennett's executive director. We were heading into a presidential cycle. There were a lot of races that we cared about going on over there. Ultimately, Chairman Bennett's, um, who was a wonderful friend and mentor of mine, who I was just was native uh, of Columbus, actually, but spent many years living here in Cleveland. Um, and uh, I, I, it was just a great experience to get to work with him and his health failed. Uh, he ended up passing away in 2014. And um, 
but before that happened, um, uh, I, I was I was blessed to uh, to be able to, with his help, be elected chairman um, by the state central committee, and I served uh, four just incredible, remarkable years that I will always cherish the memories of. Um, it's the most fun I've ever had doing anything that I would never ever want to do again. Uh, we had an incredible run. We elected more Republicans at the local level than we ever have in the history of the state and increased our majorities to the largest level they've ever been. Swept two statewide elections and uh, along the way, our governor ran for president. We carried Ohio for him in the primary. We hosted the first debate here in Cleveland. We hosted the Republican National Convention here in Cleveland. And um, it was a wild ride, a lot of fun, and just an incredible honor to have that experience. So I have to ask, when did you first meet John Kasich, and, and what did you first make of him? Well, I first met John Kasich when I was a very young man. He was he was uh, younger himself, too, and was a member of our congressional delegation by the time I came to Columbus. And so being involved in local politics uh, back in those days, John Kasich was a ubiquitous figure. I would go door to door for him and um, always knew him and his his team, his staff, uh, was always very fond of him. And um, and then reconnected with him later when he, after he retired from Congress, um, he came back to run for governor. And so about 2008, he and I began communicating again. Um, and when he decided to move forward, uh, helped him announce his candidacy. I ended up uh, running his inaugural committee. And uh, he's been a wonderful friend to me and my wife, um, you know, I also know he's been a terrific governor, the kind of person you can really feel honored to have served and to have helped get to the place where he got because he, he did a lot of really good things uh, along the way. And he's got another year left as governor of Ohio, and I'm sure he's got a, a lot of really good things left to do. Um, but it's been, a, it's been a really remarkable ride with him and you know, someone I've, I've always admired, and I, I only admire more now. Uh, after all the experiences that we've had together. I'm jumping around a little bit, but somebody else, uh, an elected official in Ohio that I kind of associate you with is Dave Yost. Mm -hmm. You've known him for a while. Can you talk about how you met him and how you've worked with him over the years? I knew Dave Yost from back in 1992 when he and I were both working on the Ohio bush quail effort uh, in, in that year, unfortunately unsuccessful effort. Um, that was an election that taught me a lot about politics too. I remember feeling really bad about things in, on election night in 1992. Uh, in some ways, I know that none of our individual efforts would have changed the result of that election, but feeling like, gee, if we had only done more, and I remember saying to myself, I never, ever want to feel this again. And so if I ever lose on election night again, which I've lost sometimes on election night, um, I want it to be because there were just things beyond our control. When we lost in 2008, I worked with John McCain, I walked him out to the stage to give his concession speech, another person I've just had the privilege and honor of getting to know. Um, you know, there was nothing we were going to be able to do to change that result. We, we couldn't have worked that much harder. I just remember saying to myself in 1992, I never, ever want to feel this way again, and so I've made sure that I haven't. Dave's been a friend of mine. Uh, we went off after that campaign, and he served in the Voinovich administration and then ran for local office himself. Uh, I think you got to know him when he was in Delaware County as a, as a city councilman, as the county auditor, and then the county prosecutor. Uh, always been a friend of ours. We played poker and did different things through the years. Uh, and 
And then he said in 2009 he wanted to give it a go for a statewide run the following year. None of us knew what the future was going to bring. Barack Obama had just been elected president. People were writing books about the death of the Republican Party. And yet, uh, a little less than two years later, um, through, through the force of our will, having been outspent three to one um, with a candidate who was running for the first time statewide, uh, Dave was elected state auditor, and he's done a marvelous job in that position. He's running for state attorney general now to replace Mike DeWine, who's moving on to run for governor. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just pleased and, and proud to have the opportunity to be associated with Dave, too. Once Borges became party chairman, he had a wild 2016, needless to say, just like everybody else. Uh, Andrew, what did you talk with him about? Well, it actually started in 2015 when Cleveland hosted the first Republican Party presidential candidate uh, debate. There's 17 candidates. He talks about fighting for John Kasich even from the beginning, uh, helping him get a seat on the main stage, and then kind of continued from there. Just Cleveland obviously was the host of the Republican National Convention the following year, and uh, Matt was really involved with Kasich's presidential campaign. He kind of talked about some of the ups and downs of that. And now more from former Ohio Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges on Ohio Matters. Uh, so you mentioned uh, early, a couple of times the debates in Cleveland, kind of how 2016 eventually played out as part of that whole long extent, uh, uh, election cycle. How did that whole process play out for you, and how did that compare to maybe what you expected when you are going into it? So um, a little... A little bit after Christmas in 2015, excuse me, 2014, pardon me, um, I got a phone call. I remember where I was. Uh, I was sitting in my driveway, and I got a phone call from Sean Spicer. And he said, uh, do you think you guys might be interested potentially if we connect you to the folks at Fox News and they're going to win this contract to uh, host the first debate? Uh, do you think you guys might be willing to do it? Would the state party be willing to put that on? And I immediately said yes, because I thought two things, candidly. One, what an opportunity to be a piece of history. We had no idea where this was going. No idea that we were going to have 17 candidates file and that John was, Kasich was going to run and that Donald Trump was going to be at center stage. No, no idea how that was going to play out. But I also thought, well, maybe there's an opportunity to give our governor a little home court advantage if he does decide to run. And uh, that became a double-edged sword in a way, because by the time it did play out, we had already agreed to do this and we had contracted with the network and with the, the queue and began doing some things that were, you know, we were, we were playing above the rim a little bit there. We, um, we had to make sure we got our governor on the stage in his home state. And uh, there was a little bit of unease as to whether we were going to be able to do that. Yeah, you're trying to keep him off the kids' table, right? Yeah. The second-tier um, candidates who debated earlier. Having no idea how it was going to play out, it ended up being with 17 people Having announced, um, Fox decided they were going to take the top 10 in terms of polling average and have them participate in the primetime debate. Well, for the governor to not have been on that stage for that first debate, I think we all realized would have been a real challenge moving forward with his campaign in terms of credibility and being taken seriously. The campaign rallied around the idea that we were going to do what we needed to do to get him there, put a plan in place, executed it brilliantly, and uh, they did a great job making sure the governor got on that stage. And you know, for those folks who recall or maybe were there, I had a chance to be there with my wife uh, that night. 
John Kasich had a great performance. It was one of his best performances of, of all of the campaign. It helped set the tone, I think, for the kinds of things you're hearing him championing now and the sort of tone he wants the party to take moving forward. Um, I couldn't, that was one of those times in life where we worked so hard to pull that event off, uh, get it to Cleveland, make it happen, get the governor there, and um, we felt really proud of the effort when it was done. So what I remember from the debate was in the, they call it the spin room afterwards, which you know what it is, but it's where all of the, I think you were there too, all of the kind of surrogates for the camp candidates all kind of cram into an empty space. And to, all the to give you context, it was madness. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were a lot of people there. I remember, uh, Andrew, you were uh, kind of pressed up against a bunch right. of Right. Well, people. so when Donald Trump walked in, the entire, it was almost like being at a rock concert or something. I don't know. Like, I actually kind of compared it to being in a Brazilian nightclub where like 100 people get trampled to death, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Like, it's just, but so it felt like that. And I remember kind of feeling like the physical danger uh, that I was getting crushed <laughs> towards Donald Trump by the people behind me. And I kind of had to like squeeze out. Um, but so I know for me, at that point, I kind of thought, like, what's what's going on with Donald Trump here? Um, when did you know that Donald Trump was going to be, um, I guess, go from being like a curiosity to actually being a real political force in the race? There were there, there were three or four points in time when the chatter, the conventional wisdom among folks. Look, even the people at Fox News who we were talking to about that initial debate were telling us he's not going to run. And then when he decided he was going to run, they said, oh, he, this isn't going to last. He's just the, he's got higher name ID than everybody else. Remember, he had the center position at the very first debate. Um, and so when he, when he got into the race fully, uh, it, was, it was an eye-opening experience. And then he kind of took command of the, of the Republican primary polling. I remember in New Hampshire. So I got a, had a wonderful experience and an opportunity to spend time out there with our governor. And our goal was really to to finish second in New Hampshire by the time it was done, and we, and we were able to do that. Um, but when we looked at our, at our second place finish, which has helped launch the candidacies ultimately of a lot of general election candidates and future presidents by just doing well enough in New Hampshire to move forward, uh, helped lend us credibility. I remember looking around at the end of that and saying, yeah, we finished second, but we were at 16%. Donald Trump was at 35 I know going into the night, we thought we could maybe keep it within 10 points. Um, so I was wondering how good about that election I really felt. There was another point in time that I thought was kind of an earth-moving event for me, and that was here in Cleveland when we came up here for uh, election night on primary night. And um, it was the Ohio primary. There were several other primaries that night, too. Now, we were involved in many races around the state, and there was a Supreme Court primary, and there were... Uh, local races, and, and we were very engaged in those. But priority number one was clearly making sure John Kasich won the Ohio primary. His campaign was over if he didn't. Marco Rubio did not carry Florida that night and had to drop out because of it. Um, and so to keep any sort of viability of the, the notion that John Kasich might end up being the Republican nominee alive, he had to carry Ohio. He did. He, he won it going away. Um, and we all felt really, we celebrated and felt really good about Things were down at Baldwin Wallace um, for that uh, event, and then I remember the, the cannon. There was, that was the night of the big of the that, big confetti cannon. That would have been what March of 2016. It yeah. was March of 20 March 15th of 2016. Yes, that's correct. And um, another night where we felt very proud of our effort uh, 
Tim Trapepe, who's a Clevelander, was um, was the advanced guy who fired off that gigantic confetti cannon that I remember a couple of months later putting that suit on and reaching into my pocket and finding confetti in there. Advanced and, guys, uh, that's like a really good example of the weird stuff that advanced guys do in politics. Yes, right. Um, <laughs> there's a good story behind it. I think our governor was told it about how he was complaining about a tiny little confetti cannon we had shot off in in New Hampshire. And so Trapepe said, okay, you want a real confetti? I'll get you a real <laughs> confetti cannon. And that thing was was something else. But anyway... Um, we felt really proud of the effort and, and, and relieved and, and happy for our governor, proud of him advancing, moving on, got the call that Rubio had dropped out, et cetera. And I remember getting back to my hotel room that night and um, getting on my phone to look at the news for the first time. And all of the news was Trump, Trump, Trump sweeps uh, primaries, Trump moves closer to nomination, Rubio drops out. It was all Trump headlines. And I, th- I thought when I'd get on CNN or Fox News or something on the internet, I would be reading about John Kasich's big victory, and I wasn't at all. And it was just so overshadowed that night by everything else that was happening around the country. So that was a big moment for us to realize that, uh uh-oh, this is really headed in this direction. Then our governor dropped out, and I think the, the, the next big moment for us was on election night in November when Donald Trump was elected president. I, I, I was among those. I felt very confident he would carry Ohio. I believed the narrative that the, not only the national media, but our national party was telling us that he wasn't likely to get elected. I think a lot of people in his own camp weren't sure he was going to get elected, and then he did. And that was kind of one of those holy cow moments along the way. And, um, but he was elected and uh, went on, obviously, as our president now. And, and, um, and so we're, we're, it, 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 was a, it was a very, very interesting process to go through to watch that develop um and and watch that sort of concept become a reality that this guy who none of us took seriously i think at the very beginning ended up getting the brass ring when it was all said and done and being elected president of the united states so the right before the election happened um there was the access hollywood tape where uh you had conversations with other officials who were thinking who were on the ticket uh, had to kind of come with the, the decision about how to respond to that. What do you remember from from that period? Chaos, total chaos. Um, we certainly had our candidates who and office holders who were not comforted. We, we were very uncomfortable with the with how that looked, how that uh, came across, what it meant for the election, what it meant for the future of the party. Um, that sentiment was shared by a lot of people, including me. We certainly had our people. I, I had a con- direct conversation with Mike DeWine the following morning. I saw him Saturday morning, and I said, what are you thinking? And he said, I'm still for him, and I'm going to stick with him. And I said, okay, you know, well, you got to do what you're comfortable with um, across the spectrum. So uh, I, I myself had a, a number of conversations. I, I, I couldn't sleep that Saturday night. And um, I woke up Sunday morning and I decided he gave me his number a couple of months ago. He told me to call him if I ever needed him, so I called Donald Trump. So I did. And I asked him if he was considering the rumors we were hearing at the time that he might drop out of the race. And he said, no, not doing that. And I said, okay, well, then if that's the case, uh, I hope we have a plan for this moving forward. And tonight's a huge debate for you, and you need to go have the night of your life. And... Um, Good luck. He said, he said, Matt, I'll call you after the debate. I'll call you tomorrow, and you, you let me know how you think I did. 
I honestly never really expected to hear from him again, but the next day he did call me. And I told him, I said, Mr. Trump, you don't shy away from the biggest of moments because that was as big of a moment as he could possibly have had. I think if he had gone and, and stumbled in that debate, this would have gotten away from us to the place where it would have been unsalvageable. He had a really good performance in that debate, and he saved the campaign, um, kept it alive, kept it viable, ultimately won. Uh, so he called me a, a, a couple days later and wanted to check in on how things were going in Ohio, and I said, I have some, I have some good news and some you know, not-so-good news, I guess. Uh, so the good news is we just got some polling back from Senator Portman, and he's up by 17 points. You're down by one. And so um, keep in mind that you're going to need his voters. He doesn't need yours. And so to the extent that there was some idea on his part that he might you know, hold things against Rob Portman and the way he was doing with John McCain and others around the country, I just I reminded him I didn't think that was a very good idea. Now, he's a smart man, and he was obviously a lot more politically savvy than maybe a lot of us had given him credit for. So he probably was planning to do this anyway. But I can tell you, he never once came to Ohio and criticized John Kasich or Rob Portman or anybody else after that. And he carried the state by almost a half a million votes in November. So um, he did the things he needed to do to salvage the campaign after that. And uh, it, was a, it, was, it was a pretty remarkable period of time. Um, looking back, I forget how close to Election Day that actually occurred. Uh, it was in October. I remember we got the news. We were at an Indians playoff game. And uh, when we were all starting to get the text messages that this had happened and there was going to be a conference call that night and he was going to put out an apology and various things. So everyone was having their own reactions, but um, uh, he managed to turn it around a little, little over a month later and, and win the election, get elected president. So during that episode and just kind of throughout the whole period of the election cycle, you kind of took the, it seems like you're taking the position that uh, if necessary, that the Ohio Republican Party should kind of separate itself from Trump when when you deemed it to be necessary. And so you yourself kind of held yourself out as not being sure whether you'd vote for him. You know, your wife, Kate, was uh, not a fan, right, to say the least. Um, do you think that you made the right call in retrospect uh, when you were trying to kind of maintain that separation? Yes. Ultimately, you have to live with yourself. You have to, uh, you have to be comfortable and confident in the positions that you take. Um, uh, and I, look, I, I, w I might feel differently about that answer had I not dealt with Mr. Trump, uh, now President Trump, directly at the time. Um, I didn't go through intermediaries. I, I, I accepted his invitation to call him when he asked, <laughs> uh, when, when I thought something like this came up, and, and I, I told him how I felt. I told him uh, we, we had some some candid conversations about my concerns about other things that were happening with the campaign, other positions and things that either had come out or, or were rumored to be coming out at that time. And um, if I had been a go-along to get-along kind of uh, person at that time and never had said anything, I'm not sure I would have felt comfortable with that answer now. Um, it might have meant that I survived as state chairman or who knows what else could have been in the cards for me moving forward. But um, that can't be what motivates people in, in positions of uh, public trust or even if it's just a, a party-level position like I had. You have to uh, ultimately, you have to serve your constituents for sure, but you have to follow your vision and the things that you believe are right and 
that was something that I was, um, I'm, I, I have no regrets about uh, the way that all went out. Trump surprised everyone when he won the election in November, and uh, Borges didn't last that much longer as party chairman as the Trump forces kind of worked to get him out and replace him with Trump-friendly allies. We talked with him about what he's seen in the year and some change since Trump has actually won and taken office, and uh, I don't know, what did you what did you kind of make of what he said? I think he's somebody like him might look back and say, well, I screwed up because here I am no longer running the Ohio Republican Party, but... Uh, he feels, uh, you know, it's actually his take isn't really that much different than 2016. He's, he thinks Trump has done some good things. He thinks uh, some of his behavioral stuff is, is a drag on the party. And, and so he's pretty much singing the same song that he was before. Yeah, the one part I noticed is he seemed to take everything basically in stride. He didn't seem to have a whole lot of regrets. And if he did, he wasn't really wearing them on his sleeve. And for a guy who wears most of what he thinks on his sleeve, that was sort of telling. Uh, even though he lost the party chairmanship, he... Uh, he didn't. He didn't seem to have any ill will toward the president or the you know president's allies or anything like that. So with that, let's listen to more from former Ohio Republican Party Chairman Matt Borges here on Ohio Matters. You know, you kind of were in a fascinating position in, in that you had an evolving relationship with with President Trump, or I guess then candidate Trump at the time. I mean, obviously you were planted firmly in Team Kasich, firm supporter of uh, our governor. Um, but then, you know, ultimately, when Trump got the uh, nomination, you you were also the Republican Party chair here in Ohio, and obviously developed a relationship with the Trump campaign, and and obviously Mr. Trump personally. I mean, could you talk a little bit about that, you know, evolution or you know, moving forward? Yeah, look, he's he's a remarkable individual. I mean, I don't think anyone could or should dispute uh, debate that. Um, incredibly successful at everything he's done in his, throughout his life, uh, was determined to be successful here, and and did the, the, the impossible. What a lot of people who were maybe more politically uh, steeped and talented and whatnot weren't able to do, which is get elected president of the United States, maybe the hardest thing in the world to do, and he did it. Um, along the way, he took the time to pick up the phone and call me and ask for my advice and my thoughts and ask me to help him with certain things, which I did. Um, and, uh, and, and was pleased to do it, shared a lot of his concerns with me. He had a lot of concerns about sort of the way some people were conducting themselves here in Ohio. He wanted people's support that he wasn't getting, and he wasn't happy about it. He never uh, held back from expressing that frustration to me. Um, ultimately, uh, there were some things that happened on the campaign that I wasn't comfortable with and I express those opinions publicly and uh, like I said I think that's the kind of thing that you have to do Uh, he didn't appreciate that and um, and that's that's fine Uh, I was happy to call him on election night and congratulate him on his victory I knew he was going to carry Ohio I told him a week or so prior to election day I said I'll call you next time I speak to you is when you've you've carried Ohio and I'll call you and let you know so when it became obvious that Ohio was going to uh, go his way. I called his cell phone and he answered again. Every time I called Donald Trump, he answered the phone, which was a re- pretty remarkable thing if you think about it. So you still have like the number in your phone, Donald I, Trump? I do. I haven't called it. I haven't dialed it since then. That was the last time I spoke with him. 
and uh, congratulate him on his victory. And and you could hear in the background the family and the other folks the the chaos kind of going around because that was right about the time that they realized not only was he that he carried Ohio, but he was going to be elected president. And um, and 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 it was uh, you know I. What people think they know about, I'm not going to ever pretend to know him well. I didn't even know him well during that period of time where we were communicating for several months. Um, but the Donald Trump that people think they know is not the Donald Trump that I, I, I brought my wife up to an event that the Timkins had at um, in Canton at Brookside Country Club for Donald Trump. And um, I had to kind of settle things with uh, his then campaign manager, Paul Manafort. And he and I had gotten into a little bit of a row at the convention and so it was our first opportunity to see each other face to face again, and we decided we we're going to put that behind us and move forward and try to win the election. Um, but I brought my wife to that event um, because I said, "You got to meet this guy. He's not what you think." And when you meet him in person, he was—he just is—he—he's he, really a remarkable uh, person, and um, and couldn't have been more personable, couldn't have been kinder to my wife. He came over during this dinner with all these big hitters and people who were giving him a lot of money and spent a lot of time over at, at our end of the table speaking with us. And I finally said, go, go talk to these other folks. You know, you, you've got a lot of people who are supporting you who uh, want to get to know you better. And uh, he can command a room you know, as well as anyone I've ever seen. Um, he has an incredible presence. He knows how to use it. And... Um, and he was uh, he was he was kind and generous with his time uh, with us then, um, and I just think that sometimes isn't the depiction that people have of Donald Trump. I got a, I got a chance to to see that. Now a lot of the reason that people don't have that understanding of him is his own fault. But um, we did get an opportunity to meet meet Donald Trump, the man, and um, it like I said, it was it was not what you would have expected. So you were uh, voted out as party chairman in January 20, 2017, around the time that uh, President Trump became President Trump. Um, what do you make of him as president? And how, how is he, you know, um, as he's uh, been holding that office, how do you think he's done? Um, so from a policy standpoint, I think a lot of the things that the president have done we're, we're very proud of, we're very happy about. Um, I think uh, the economy is roaring. That makes such a difference in people's lives. Uh, it allows you to have access to health care and, 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 um, and, and better schools for your kids and the things you want to do. And so making the economy move again has got to be priority number one. And in a lot of ways, it's exactly the kind of thing that John Kasich was talking about doing when he ran in 2009, 2010 for governor and won. Um, so we'd, we, we had hoped in 2012 we could have done this. We we were able to do it in 2016, get a Republican in there, start to pursue the kind of policies that we felt like would get the government off the backs of small business and get the economy moving again, cut taxes. Um, you know, there was this whole idea that we could, that there was all these, uh, these, you know, the stranded assets that were offshores that we could get um, reinvested in, in the United States. And that's happening again. And, and, and things are really moving. Um, look, from a tone standpoint, uh, and what this means in terms of our appeal um, to the electorate generally and the future of the party, I obviously still have concerns. And um, Is it pretty much what you expected? No. I don't know if anybody knew what to expect. And there had been this notion that, well, when he gets there, when he takes office, 
you'll see him. It'll change. The tone will change. The, the, the tweets will stop. The combativeness, the self-aggrandizement, the the kinds of things that we all learned in kindergarten, like you're not supposed to do and be proud of. Um, he puts those things front and center. And um, it's a, it, it drives a lot of people crazy. It, it doesn't drive me crazy. But I do see people sort of out of their mind about it. And then there are some people that it just doesn't bother at all, which I also find very interesting. And it's a dynamic that I, I needed to grow to get used to. Um, I, I, but I, it, does, it does give me pause, and, and it's cause for concern. And uh, I worry about the, um, the future of the party moving forward. Certainly. So, Matt, you know, given what we've seen over the past year, two years, uh, do you think Republicans will have a tough time in 2018? I mean, poll numbers have shown kind of uh, low approval and whatnot. Uh, where, where do you see 2018 heading? We have a great ticket of candidates. Um, we should win these races. Uh, I don't think Democrats have done a really good job of grooming future leaders. And so the, the kinds of candidates that they would need to run, we're not going to ever, we never take anything for granted ever. And so we also recognize that maybe the last few cycles, the wind's been at our back. 2010, 2014, at statewide level, I think the environment favored us. This is going to be a year where the wind is in our face, and I think we know that. So what all these candidates have to do is run very good races, contrast themselves to their opponents, and appeal to an electorate that um, is uh, maybe a little bit cautious right now about the Republican brand. And uh, we're all prepared to do that. And we're all having those conversations about how to do that. Um, unfortunately, we're running against some very imperfect opponents on the Democratic side. Um, a person uh, who's running for for um, for governor who uh, is going to be pinioned to the uh, to the Obama years um, with Rich a, with Rich Cordray with a with a very unpopular agency that he uh, was a part of that had a lot of internal challenges of its own that the public will certainly be learning more and more about. Um, and, uh, a, a gentleman from up here in, in Cleveland, who was the former United States attorney, uh, who's going to have a lot of problems, uh, with his own base here in Cuyahoga County because of the way he conducted himself when he was U S attorney running for attorney general now, um, who, uh, who really let everyone down in a situation where, uh, where we had some, like, like many other communities who have unfortunately had to experience this, uh, with uh, with a police officer shooting of a of a of, of an African American uh, here in this city that became very high profile, we had a United States attorney who um, managed to do the wrong thing on both sides, and so um, uh, again the the electorate generally will hear more about those kind of candidates and those kinds of backgrounds, and uh, we'll let them make their own minds up uh, come November, but. Um, we have to recognize the, the environment that we're running in and then make sure we run really good races and, and um, we've got good candidates who are able to do that. I'm curious too, I know that you mentioned you know, the electric may be cautious when it comes to the Republican Party brand. I wonder perhaps if that's because voters may be confused about what the Republican brand does, you know, whether or not it's what we're seeing with P- President Trump, um, very brash, that sort of thing, or perhaps the Republican Party that... Um, John Kasich represents. And, and I'm curious, 
you know, as these 2018 candidates in Ohio, uh, you know, are running their campaigns, uh, what is the Republican Party right now? Look, I think you're talking about a couple different things, right? I think you're talking about um, Republicanism and Trumpism at the same time. I, I, every poll I've seen, uh, voters know they can separate Donald Trump and sort of some of the behavioral um, matters that you know are concerning to some of us separate him from really everyone else. He, he's a brand unto himself. He's been a very successful brand. Um, it doesn't translate down. And that's one of the things I do get concerned about is other candidates who try to become sort of mini Trumps doesn't work. Uh, there's no such thing as a mini Trump. And I know some of these people and I know they weren't really mini Trumps. I know some of the people who've gone to work for them and I know how opposed to Trump they were prior to taking their jobs. Um, but you know, I also like to think that, um, again, I, as we, we talked about earlier, I, I, got involved in this when I became kind of aware in life and in politics uh, was during the Reagan years, a hopeful, aspirational kind of vision for not just America, but what America means on the national and international stage. Um, how fortunate we are. We can hit the cosmic jackpot just by being born here. And, um, and what that, what that uh, kind of uh, it, it means for us in terms of having a responsibility to, re- to being respectful of uh, this incredible place that we live and to helping spread that freedom around the world um, through our actions, through our, 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 our public statements and so many other things. Uh, we, we're, we're this guiding light that, that shows the way. You know, if, if there's some kind of temporary setback in that because of Trumpism on the international stage, I, it's, I think it's just that. I think it's temporary. Um, I think our vision... That- you know, uh, John Kasich ran kind of like the let's give everyone a hug, you know, let's come together kind of campaign. And Donald Trump ran like the American Carnage campaign. And Donald Trump won Ohio by nine points. Um, so couldn't you argue that just based on history that maybe voters are angry and they respond better to that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I think one, one of the things that I'm, I want to be mindful of as moving forward is um, we ended up here somehow where there was this catharsis uh, of kind of, of, of an angry electorate that expressed itself in 2016 um, and maybe did start to take the party in a little bit of a different direction than some of us would be hopeful for. Um, but uh, somehow or another over the years, we've all contributed to that in some way, whether we were wanted to or not. Um, and so I think that's something that I've tried to be mindful of and, and maybe we can start to look at things a little bit differently, um, so that we can move away from that kind of division. Cause I don't think that's, that's just not, that's not a good, uh, environment for any of us to be in. Um, and I'd remind you that John Casey did carry the primary in Ohio, um, so significantly, um, he's still, he's going to, he's going to leave his term as a very, very popular governor a very successful governor, still with approval ratings in the 60s. Like I saw his numbers the other day, and his approval rating among Republicans is 75%. So, um, is it in Ohio or national? Ohio. So, uh, you know, this is someone who, he had a vision, and his vision clearly is a little bit different than what the president's vision was. Um, but if you look at some of their economic policies and, and other things that, you know, they, I don't think they would have been all that different at all. Their, their different was in tone and in style. And um, 
I think uh, certainly President Trump was able to uh, take advantage of a situation where the the national mood was a little bit angrier, um, and he did ride that wave. And maybe it's a good idea for us all to figure out how to never be in that type of situation again. You know, the first time that I really realized that John Kasich was was his national profile was really rising was when I got a call from my dad, and I grew up in Texas. My dad goes, "Who's this John Kasich fellow? I I, I like him." Um, and I feel like so many uh, people ac- across the country really got to know John Kasich and really, um, you know, really uh, latched onto his message. Um, I'm curious, what do you think Kasich showed on a state level um, that most translated best to him being successful um, on a national level? Um, again, I think for a lot of people, it came down to the the hopelessness and despair that a lot of people were feeling uh, in 2009, 2010, with regard to the economy. It took a while for that really to right itself and get better. Um, but you really needed not only the right kind of policies in place, but the right kind of person who could be a champion for the state and um, help people just kind of feel better about things and believe again. And those pocketbook issues are so incredibly important to voters everywhere. They certainly are in Ohio. And uh, our governor from day one said it's all about jobs and the and helping turn this economy around and he's done that so um you know he was somebody who stood on that stage in cleveland you know, where there were there were two stages right because there were 17 candidates and he stood on the main stage um who had already done all the kinds of things that people were looking for a republican to be able to do and were when was willing and able to do it and campaign for it in a hopeful and aspirational way and um you know, it was so sad for a lot of us when it didn't work out and when the governor ended up uh, abandoning his campaign for president was that that's how you, we all wanted to win. You know, we wanted to win and we wanted to not just be able to govern, we wanted to be able to, to show the way in the way that we believed so much in what our governor was doing. It doesn't surprise me at all that that kind of attitude resonated beyond you know, the borders of Ohio and that people like you see your dad in Texas and my folks in Rhode Island and voters across New Hampshire and other places where they were willing to open their doors and give us a chance. Um, it didn't surprise me that he was doing as well as he was. Um, in some ways, we had unleashed a little bit of a monster, I think. And um, the that kind of angry, divisive campaigning had be, had become the norm. I think it started in the Clinton years. I mean, it sort of, you know, it has its history throughout American politics, but the Clinton years were particularly divisive. Um, President Obama, I think, was a divisive figure, and our voters were, were gnashing their teeth and angry and wanted to get back in there at, at all costs, and they saw someone who was willing to kind of take that fight and speak for the everyman in Donald Trump, and they didn't really care anymore that he hadn't already done it the way John Kasich had done it at the state level. They just wanted to see him take the fight to the Democrats, and um, he won, and winning is what we want. We want to be able to govern, and we want to be able to control policy, and appoint Supreme Court justices and all the things that we're proud of that Republican leadership and that Donald Trump is doing for us. Um, But I think it's not too much to ask for us to say we also want to do it in a way that we can feel proud of and that our kids can look up to and respect and that we can be respected and continue to be respected in the international community because we show the way and because we believe in this uh, wonderful idea of of America and the country that we live in. And, um, you know, we we probably have some soul searching to do and to make sure that we get back to that kind of messaging again. 
What's the future hold for John Kasich? I mean, going forward, there's only so much you can do kind of post-governorship. What is What does he do? Where's his place in America? Oh, look, I think, again, our governor's going to leave. Uh, he's going to finish his second term here as a wildly successful, wildly popular governor of the state who took over when things were very uncertain and helped guide the state back to a position of being, you know, very successful. So um, he'll have his choice of what he wants to do moving forward, whether that's teach, be on the speaking circuit, do television again, uh, write books, um, or, or, uh, or, or, or do, do those kinds of things. He's, he's, he's going to continue to want to be a voice in the national discussion, and he should be. And I hope he die, you know, do anything I can to help him be a voice in that national discussion. He's never going to go on some kind of suicide mission to run for president if if there's no possibility of of being elected. But you know, if if that lane were to ever open up, I mean, that would really be a wonderful thing to be to experience with him. And we'd all, I think, uh, love to get on board with it because that would mean that the attitude, the appetite among voters was changing that that lane only would exist because the environment shifted and people were saying, give us something different, give us a hopeful vision, maybe someone who can get along with Republicans and Democrats and actually work to get things done. And you know, that's not where we are right now. We're very polarized still. Um, but if that starts to, sh- starts to change and that uh, path were to open up, I think John Kasich would be a wonderful person to fill it if he chose to do that. And if he chose to do it, you know, we'd all be right there with him trying to fight to make that happen. So the title of our podcast is Ohio Matters. And at some point, um, I'll stop like fixating on this. But I think it's also kind of a question a little bit that, that we have, you know, what's Ohio's political role in the United States um, going forward? Do you think that Ohio still matters on the same uh, the same way that it, that it has traditionally on a national stage? Absolutely. That, yeah, why is that? Look, you can't. Um, I, I, I had the the honor of being able to travel uh, with the White House, primarily with the vice president um, all over the world uh, during uh, the Bush-Cheney years. And um, you, you, anywhere you go, people know about American politics and they know about Ohio voters and they know about how important Ohio is. Um, it's one of the things that uh, made it such an honor to be able to serve in that capacity as the chairman of the state party for uh, four years was that um, we do have such a critical role in the national discussion. And it wasn't just a coincidence that we hosted the convention. We had that first debate and that we uh, had our governor in the national spotlight and and had those opportunities uh, that we did. Um, Because voters all over the world understand the importance of Ohio. And so we have that special sort of uh, responsibility and... uh, People know as Ohio goes, so goes the country. And you just look at um, the rise of Republicans around the country. We, we, we led that charge. Um, of course, during my time here, we, we lost the state twice uh, while sweeping statewide elections. We lost the state twice to Bill Clinton. Then we won it twice with George Bush, lost it twice to Barack Obama, have won it again with Donald Trump. And so we're always with the winner. And um, I think we'll continue to be uh, moving forward. So you think Ohio is still a swing state, or do you think Republicans have kind of like planted their flag and, you know, that uh, they maybe have a more of a position of strength on the ongoing basis? Well, I think for a lot of reasons, Republicans are stronger here than 
organizationally and, and message-wise and whatnot for, uh, for Ohio's voters. Um, we just align a little bit better, I think, with, with, the, with the voters. But, again, you never want to take anything for granted, and, and voters will boot you out as soon as they, as, as they will accept you if you start to lose touch with what they care about. And um, we need to make sure that we don't do that. And so that pendulum could easily swing back in the other direction if we're not careful. So um, we run good, smart campaigns. We run good candidates who are good people. I think that's maybe the most important thing, one of the things we didn't really touch on here today. But, you know, the quality of the people that we run needs to be very, very high and is. Um, People like Frank LaRose, like Dave Yost, like Mike DeWine um, had an opportunity here to get to know Robert Sprague a little bit better. I've known Keith Faber for many years. These are good human beings and and that that matters so much their commitment to their family their commitment to their communities and what they do um those are the kinds of folks that that uh that we enjoy having the opportunity to serve and voters see that they know that in intrinsically you can't fake that um and so at the end of the day we um we will always have our work cut out for us but uh we are in a swing state so we have to recognize that uh, we earned this position of having Republican dominance in the, at the state level, and uh, we're going to have to earn the opportunity to keep it. What's your future in politics? Well, I think continue to do the things that I've been doing my whole career and helping candidates, helping people I like, be maybe a little bit more discerning about who I work with, um, and, uh, and, uh, and you know, see if we can keep this thing going. Uh, I, I believe we have moved the state in the country in the right direction when we have won elections. And so you can't be in this, you know, at some level, all of us political operatives are mercenaries. Um, and But you, you've got to be in it for the right reasons for it to matter. And um, I, I, I believe in the people I work with. I believe they have the best interests of the citizens of the state in mind when they run. And if I didn't, I wouldn't work with them. So, um, I'm going to continue to do that and, and help make my mark that way. And, uh, this podcast, notwithstanding to the, uh, millions of people who I know are going to be out there listening to, to this, um, millions. maybe, uh, Trillions. yeah, maybe, um, maybe to have an opportunity to, to step out of the spotlight myself a little bit. All right, Matt. Well, thanks for joining us. And, uh, thanks everyone for listening to Ohio Matters. Thanks for having me. It was fun. 